over the years. This is my first time actually getting to be here in person and getting to talk to you guys about one of the things that is uh, very close to my heart, the Great Commission, seeing God's name being glorified among every language and people group around this world. And so, yeah, you guys make a week of this and you allot a certain amount of time to where we focus specifically on that is pretty neat. The brother that spoke here, man, it's my privilege to represent your 62 ambassadors that have taken his name around the world. And that is not something I take lightly. It's my treat on many, many levels. And so this morning, before we dive into the message, I want to give you guys a little bit of my background, a little bit of my story so you can understand uh, where I'm coming from and some of the words that we're going to dive into later. We're going to get into the passage that Pastor Don talked about, Matthew 28, just an expounded version of Mark 16, and why we're called to make disciples of the nations. Is this just one of the things that we do? We have Sunday schools, we have the choir, we have... Uh, different programs, and we also have missions. Or is it the thing that the church was left here to do? And so we're going to dive into that pretty deeply when we get to Matthew. But uh, for right now, uh, just a little bit of my background. I was raised overseas. Uh, you're going to hear my old man tonight. He's quite a kick. Uh, brace yourself for that one. Um, <clears throat> he'll be talking. But uh, raised overseas, and I came back, and I wanted to join the Marine Corps. I uh, came back and was thinking about it, and dad had a deal for me. He said, if you'll give me two years in college, then I'll give you my blessing, and you can head off to the Marine Corps. And I said, all right, so be it. Headed off to college, went to David Jeremiah's College, San Diego Christian College, and uh, dad knew better than I did. He knew that if I went to college, I was probably going to meet some girl, and that was going to be the end of the Corps, and uh, that's exactly what happened. I got into freshman orientation, and in walks this drop-dead, gorgeous, unbelievable girl, She's the orientation coordinator for all the freshmen coming in. And I turn to the guy next to me and I say, I'm going to marry that girl. And he turns back to me and he says, good luck. Do you see the guy walking in behind her? They're about a month away from getting engaged. And I put my head down and I go, oh, good night. Well, how am I going to do this? I got 22 bucks and a really bad Honda Civic. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I did the only thing I knew and I made friends with him. And yeah, through a series of events, they ended up breaking up. It was incredible. Uh, <laughs> God works in mysterious ways. They broke up. We ended up getting married. Uh, my wife got a degree in counseling psychology. I got a degree in business administration with an emphasis in accounting. And I started working as an accountant in a company called Trespa North America. Worked as a baseline accountant, worked my way up to accounting manager within six months. And then I started sitting for my exams to uh, be in the leadership of the North American branch. It was a Dutch company. And uh, through a series of hirings and firings, uh, I ended up at the age of 29 becoming the CFO of Trespa North America. We had about $60,000 in debt. We were out of debt within a year and a half of being in that job. We started looking at houses. My wife had a Mercedes S-Class. I had a uh, Nissan Xterra, the cheddar cheese one, but I had the interior rubberized so that I could put my surfboards in and I could go surfing and then I could just hose it out with a hose afterwards. We hadn't yet had our son. We have one son and uh, I had already chosen the private school he was going to go to, had prepaid K through 12 so that he could, know, he could go to that private school all the way through. I knew that he was going to go to USC, he was going to play football, he was going to come back and save the Chargers from their horrible demise. It was all going to be great. Life was mapped out. Man, we had everything. We had the American dream, and we were walking with God too. It wasn't like we were walking away from God. We were involved in our church and the youth group, supporting five missionaries. And guys, I praise God to this day that he broke in on my world. 
Not through some calling, not through anything mystical, not anything uh, seeing uh, missions in the sky or seeing it come up on my dash in my car or anything like that. Through this book, through this book alone, that was the only call that I ever got into missions. And I was shocked when I got to Papua New Guinea and I ended up on the leadership team there after seven years. I remember doing a, a questionnaire for the missionaries that I was in charge of, 242 missionaries, and asking them, how many of you got a missionary call a call to go into long-term missions. Of the 242, you know how many? None. They read this book, they believed what it said, and they believed in a God who has the power to open doors and to close doors. God has that power, and man, to recognize that there is someone over me, there is an authority figure over me that has the right to dictate what I do with my life. And Lord, if you don't have me going into this, please close those doors. Please close those doors. Please don't allow me to end up somewhere where you don't want me to go. But man, until that point, I move forward based off of what I understand in this book. And so that was what drove my wife and I, honestly. The passage we're going to dive into today was one of the driving impetuses behind us getting to the field. And we uh, went in, handed in my 30-day notice to my boss. He asked, what company are we losing you to? And I said, well we are actually gonna be joining a missions organization and we're going to be heading overseas. We're gonna be going to a group of people that has yet to hear the gospel. After he got done picking his jaw up off the ground, uh, he said, what in the world are you doing? Do you realize you're throwing away your future and you're throwing away your son's future as well? Do you realize that? And guys, those are some hard days thinking through the ramifications of taking God's name where it has never been before, walking away from dreams, ambitions, giftings, and saying, no, I'll do something else. And man, that was a trying time, probably one of the hardest times I've gone through in my life, but to see God be faithful even in those days. And so we headed off to missionary training. I still believe today there is a massive gulf of difference between a trained candidate and an untrained candidate. Anything less than six months is not training. I firmly believe that. To head overseas to one of the hardest jobs on the face of the earth, to see a culture, a people group changed, to see a church planted long-term that will outlast the missionary, a generational church, man, that takes some training. And that's why, man, I'm involved with Radius International. The, uh, we train students in a third world context in Tijuana, Mexico. We get them down there. We take away their internet for the first six months. We put them through early morning workouts. Uh, every 15 minutes of their day is on a timesheet so they can graph how they're learning language and culture. We teach them how to learn language and culture. We teach them how to translate. We teach them about cross-cultural missions. We teach them about businesses' missions. Most of our candidates end up in urban environments. They end up heading to some of the closed, hardest to reach countries, Afghanistan, North Korea, Syria, India, China. All of those things are moving forward. And man, Radius is... Uh, Radius is tough. We had David Jeremiah down there just a few months ago, and he said, this is the Navy SEALs of missionary training. I don't know about that, but it is difficult, and it's difficult on purpose. It's stringent. You want your candidates to be vetted before they head overseas. You want to know, we, we feel like Radius is a service to the church, not to the agencies, to the church, to have them prepared. Many of our graduates, as they make it to the field, say, if I hadn't have gone through what I went through in Tijuana, I don't think I would have made it in Uganda, in Niger, in Afghanistan. There's no way I'd have gone through those types of things. And so, man, I have a lot of uh, 
excitement about what we're seeing. The campus is growing. We're expanding, doubling nearly every year. And so it's my privilege to be a part of that. My wife and I went off to missionary training. At that point, we went with New Tribes Mission, learned many of those same things that I just talked about, headed over to the country of Papua New Guinea, learned the first language. In today's day, in 2017, 2018, if you're going to take the gospel to an unreached people group, you're going to have to learn two languages. You're going to have to learn the language of the country that you're going to and the unreached people group within that country. And so language was a really high priority to us. We learned the first language, and I'll never forget it. Uh, the leadership of our mission came to us, and they handed us a list of tribes that were still asking for missionaries. And I looked at the list, and they had been asking. They don't make the list unless they've been asking for five consecutive years. Five consecutive years, and they make it on the piece of paper. And we looked at the list, and we figured the only just thing to do was uh, to go to the tribe that had been asking for the longest. And so we went, uh, we decided we were going to go to the Tuwadi people. They'd been asking for 12 years. 12 years for somebody to come, learn their language, live among them, and bring this talk that they had heard about that changes villages. They weren't asking for Jesus. They were asking because they saw what happened when missionaries moved in. The uh, infant mortality rate started to drop. We started to see more mothers making it through. We started to see children, uh, man, live through that trying time, and we started to see malaria start to go down, and a lot of people live through that. So we decided we were going to go to Tuwadi, uh, ask the pilot to bring the plane around, and a week later, he brought the plane, and he said, guys, I got good news and bad news. Good news is it's a great flying day. Bad news is the Tuwadi airstrip is underwater. We're not going to be going there. Uh, they had six inches of rain during the night, and it's totally underwater, so where do you want to go? What's your second choice? And we pulled out the piece of paper, and we saw this place on there called Yembi Yembi that we had talked about as our second choice, and the Yembis were strong people, very, very strong. Uh, they had had a reputation for being demanding, and we swallowed deep and said, okay, um, let's go to Yembi. Let's go look at that one, and we'll decide after we take a first trip in there. So we flew, uh, took off in the airplane. We scribbled out a little note on a piece of paper, shoved it in an empty water bottle, flew over the tribe of Yembi Yembi. The pilot turned the plane on its side, opened the window to the airplane. We threw the water bottle out, and there's this little kid running. I remember seeing him in my, just remembering, looking down on him, and he's running, trying to catch the water bottle. And I remember thinking, oh, Lord, we're going to kill the first Yembi Yembi we meet. He runs, he misses the water bottle, and uh, the elders pull the piece of paper out of his hand, the water bottle, and we can see them waving it. And then we fly off, we load up in motor canoes, and we start coming, and we start coming and coming at eight hours in a motor canoe. A motor canoe's a canoe about as long as this room with an outboard motor on the back, and so they could hear us coming from miles and miles away. And we finally pull into Yembi Yembi right as the sun is going down. And the Yembis have a unique greeting. If you ever make it there someday, they'll do the same for you. They do it for all outsiders. They take a hunk of mud and they shove it into your forehead. Then they push it down your face all the way to about your Adam's apple. Then they take diced up flower petals and they whip them at your face and it sticks to the mud. And so now you look beautiful. You're ready to enter into the village. And so that was our initial welcome into Yembi Yembi was hey, here we go, okay, we're looking around, nobody's got a spear in their back, I think this is going to work, okay. And that was our first introduction, and we spent three days there, we uh, wrote their language down on paper, we got a ton of video, a ton of pictures, and we went back out, talked to our mission leadership, our wives, uh, it was myself and two other guys on the team, and we decided this is where God has us going. And we went back into Yembi Yembi, and uh, we told them, we're going to be coming, we're going to be your missionaries, and we're going to do four things. 
We're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to learn to speak like you guys speak. And number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. They didn't have a developed alphabet and orthography, and we're going to teach you how to learn that alphabet. We're going to teach you how to read and write. Number three, we're going to teach you some talk that comes from one particular book. And so you know that this book, we're not just making this book up, we're going to translate that book into your language. And once we've taught you all the talk from this book, we're going to leave. When all four of those jobs are done, we're going to leave someday. We're not here forever. We're coming to fulfill those four jobs. And when those four jobs are completed, then someday we're going to leave. And I remember one of the village chiefs stood up and he said, that's great. So excited for it. But I want to know if you're actually going to become, if you guys are going to be like people who go and come, or if you're going to be insiders, if you're going to stay, if you're going to become one of us. And we didn't know really what he meant. What he meant was there had been tourists that had bounced in and out of Yembe on a routine basis. And he wanted us to become adopted into the tribes, into the clans there. And so we got adopted into the different clans. There's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, eagle clan, black cockatoos, toucans. They looked at me with my long legs and my nose, and they are like, ostrich clan, you're in there. <laughs> my wife has long blonde hair. They put us into the eagle clan, or put her into the eagle clan. We got married. Um, they made us get remarried. They gave us new names. Uh, they gave us all sorts of different things. They taught us how to be uh, Yembe Yembe men and women. It took us two and a half years to learn that language and culture. And finally, we got to the point to where we were fluent enough to start presenting the gospel. And the Yembe's, uh, man, I just remember when we brought that gospel to them, starting off in Genesis, starting off teaching. The Yembe's aren't like you guys. They, uh, if the Yembe's like what you're saying, they literally will stand up or they'll sit wherever they're sitting at and they'll say, keep talking. Keep talking, this talk is good to my belly. And you'll hear like different people yell out that. If they don't like what you're saying, they will stand up and they will say, shut your mouth. I don't like this talk. Don't you see my ears, they're bleeding. Enough. So you know really fast if you're flying or dying, you, you're getting a very clear indicator, live time. And guys, we started off teaching and we started off in Genesis and worked our way through the Old Testament uh, teaching five nights a week for three hours a night. Then Yembe's are night guys, and so we would stay up seven o'clock to 10 o'clock, and then we'd stay another two hours to answer questions, teaching them about the God of the Bible, teaching them who this God was. This God isn't like your ancestors. This God isn't like your spirits. This God isn't like your gods. This God is altogether different. And man, the Yembe's latched onto that. And when finally we got to the point to where we were starting to bring Jesus onto the scene, it was amazing to me. I'd heard stories about it. But to see them fall in love with Jesus even before they knew he died for their sins. Because Jesus came for people like the Yembies. Jesus came for the lowest of the low. Jesus didn't hang out with the leaders. He didn't hang out with the, the different pastors, the teachers, the, the leaders of Jewish religion. He was with the low. He was with the Yembies of his day. And to see the gospel work its way in there, April 21st, 2008, the gospel presented for the first time and see the Yembe Church come to life. What an amazing privilege. Man, I've been a part of some amazing things, some championship basketball teams, got to do some multi-million dollar deals over in Europe, see my son born. Nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to seeing God's name for the first time in history proclaimed among a new people group a new language group. The Yembe Yembe's, after about three months, I, one of them stood up and gave a testimony, and he said, I don't know when our ancestors lost this talk. If I had to guess, I would guess it was back in the Tower of Babel. 
when our ancestors knew this talk. But now, this rope has been rejoined again. And we will not let this rope be pulled apart one more time. It will be on us to carry this on to our children, to our grandchildren. What a privilege. What a privilege. And so through this whole time, we were translating the New Testament as well, uh, getting the New Testament up to speed. And finally, we were able to present the New Testament to the MBME Church in 2013. And we actually had a film crew that came over and was there. So I'm going to show you guys a quick little video about what happened on that day. We told the Yambis, listen, there's going to be a lot of Americans, a lot of people who aren't used to getting mud shoved in their face. Uh, just put the mud on the outsides of their face, not in their eyes, that kind of thing. So anyways, watch this video, and then we'll dive into the word real quick. After nine years, the moment has come. The missionaries have phased out of the tribe, leaving a church body with trained pastors for a new generation. The last step is providing them with a Bible in their native tongue. This occasion is honored by a dedication that brings hundreds of native believers, neighboring missionaries, and even supporters from back home. It's a celebration of heavenly proportions. We're on our way. This is it. Maybe every Bible dedication. to wonder, what am I doing here? Will this matter? Will it even last? Now I just stand in wonder. How did God take us, a few regular people, to this remote village in the middle of the jungle? plant the seed of his word and watch it grow, watch it transform and see the dead brought to life and hear a new people proclaim God's glory in their own language.
Thomas with a pinky wire. Pinky pinky. Long. Twenty years I'm at the cost. Two thousand years I'm at the Airbnb. Nothing less for Airbnb. You can wait. Long time to start talking to you. Long talk less than you last. La Thomas li dago fotogwame e adakam. Anan adora atol. Anan in the witi tenefis fisi lo momona. Agwa anda nimam lopoyosa yonias yonias. We agoya omo atol la ya tatol. Lomti fani. Through lo life lo mi minusa. Godan by giving me how much yar is that? Now me got 37 yar. Minusa, God by giving me how much more. That's a one and walk and then giving me law. Karim talk, he come no place. Me feel him also, me am a mask more. Now me feel him also, just a book and mark him. One plus big plus something. That's a you plus have a finish. Me know in a pull him talk, you plus have a finish. Book and big plus something. That's why you got one plus something and me big plus more of book. One on. See us. Book. And me big plus more. Book and go help him see us. That's all. We like to thank you all money been to come to me one day, Nina. Buy me black boy come. We now come in love no matter. That Jesus and Thomas and David you and finish down and carry me go on the ground. Buy me boy come here. That's a just a book and by helping see us more. And promise to me you black and kiss him that you black and only must. story of one tribe, but there are thousands just like them, still waiting to hear. All right, that was the day we presented the New Testament, the MBMB, a uh, day unlike any other day. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to talk about the Great Commission and the commissioning that God gave his disciples, but ultimately his church. When we think of commission, we think of someone in charge, someone asking another to fulfill a task, to see a job completed. Not halfway, man, a painting gets commissioned, a sculpture gets commissioned by a patron. We don't prefer to see a job halfway done. The patron isn't happy, the master isn't happy until the job is completed. That's why we call this the Great Commission, the task that Jesus left his church. And it behooves us to look at these words and to look at the context of them, where they come in. Jesus is on his way back to his home, to heaven. Earth was not his home. He was here as a missionary. And to see Jesus in his final words, he could have spoken on a multitude of topics. He could have spoken about the church. He could have talked about faith. He could have talked about family. But Jesus had something on his mind that he wanted ringing in his disciples' ears for his final words while he was here on earth. I go on trips routinely. I travel around. I speak at universities, at different churches. Uh, we're starting a campus for the Chinese underground church over in Asia. Travel over there to see him. And I have one son, one child, 17-year-old boy. And when I leave, I have a talk with him. 
And it generally does not revolve around keeping the yard clean, helping his mom with dishes, or doing a multitude of tasks that are good tasks. If I'm going to use my final words with my son, I want it to to be something significant so that if I pass away, if something happens to me, he remembers those words. Those are the most important things. Final words have more importance because they're final words. And Jesus is about to give his final command here to his disciples, and he says this in Matthew 28, 16 to 18. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want to pause there just for a second. Jesus is speaking now as the risen king, the exalted king. This isn't the man of sorrows, the humble carpenter. This is altogether different. This is the foreshadowing of the one that we see coming in Revelation 1, where John, the one who rested his head on Jesus, the night that they sat together, the final night, and John falls at his feet like he's dead. This is the foreshadowing of that one, the king, come back saying, guys, I have the right. And what Jesus says here is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What that means is if you call yourself a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you no longer have the right to call the shots on your life. You no longer are a out there lone ranger. You're a person under control if you're a believer. You're a person under authority. Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your giftings, the new one, your passions are under someone else. It always cracks me up. I I speak at these colleges and there's some well-intentioned young man or young woman that comes up to me afterwards and says, that's great. So glad that God gifted you to go to the jungle, that you like being there, that you like the heat, that you like canoes and crocodiles and those types of things. And I always chuckle. I never have the heart to say it, but I always chuckle because my wife and I, we hate the jungle. We hate the jungle. We don't like camping. When we come back to the United States, we don't even go camping. We don't like the outdoors. We like smog. We like city. We like malls. We like fast cars. We like all those things. But when did it become about what we like, what we're into? All of those things fall under the king if we're truly people under authority. And Jesus continues here and he says this in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, based off of that authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And what he's saying here is this word, nations. I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but man, it behooves us to go over the specificity of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, take my name to the, to the nations, which is translated the word, the word ethnos. Ethnos is where we get the word for ethnicities, for ethnic. You know what the defining feature of an ethnic group is? The head and shoulders defining feature? Language. Language. We take God's message to every language group, to every ethnic group out there. That's the commission that the king has given to his disciples and to his church. We take the message there and we continue to teach, we continue to disciple. 
until we see churches established. Jesus is differentiating between peoples, between skin colors, between ethnicities. He wants all of them. This is a reoccurring theme, this language theme, and we don't have time to get into that. But this is one of the things that Jesus prizes himself on, that we are going to see all peoples, all languages around the throne someday. And until that is accomplished, the church has yet to fulfill her job. We're left with one task, get my message to the nations. And he closes out here and he says, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to be with you. But guys, the point of that is there will be an end to this age. There will be an end to missions. Missions is not the end goal. The end goal is to see God worshiped among all peoples, all languages, to live in such a way. Man, I love what John Piper says. He says, if we take this command seriously, the church has three options. We go, we send, or we disobey, if we believe this book to be true. We go, and if we go, we go radically. We go to those last places. We go to that wall that's on the back there, and we scratch off one of those names. We continue to push to the last people groups to see those last languages. And if we send, we send just as radically. We live in smaller houses. We drive older cars. We do things so that God's name would continue to move out to those last places that have yet to be reached. And we don't stop until we're finished. I want to close with one story today. Um, my, one of my jobs when I was over in Papua New Guinea in leadership was to uh, see those letters that would come in from tribes that had been asking for missionaries. And they would send their letters in. And once in a while, we would have a group that didn't know how to write in the national language. And so they would send ambassadors out. And we heard about this one place called Gatamambu. And uh, we drew straws because we knew it was going to be a really far journey to get to Gatamambu. And I drew the short straw. So I went back into Yembi Yembi, uh, the tribe that I was working in. And I talked to the church there, and the church said, we've heard about that place. You should take an older man with you uh, just so that you'll be a little bit safer. So one of my tribal fathers, because we were adopted into the ostrich clan, uh, my tribal father decided to come with me. So we loaded up in the airplane. We did the same thing. We flew over the Gatamambu tribe. We dropped a letter, and we let them know that we're coming. We landed at an airfield, and uh, we started hiking. And we hiked for about four hours, and we got to the first village called Nawe. And Nawe was the same dialect as the Gatamambu people, but they were a little bit different. They were a little bit further out, and they hadn't been asking for missionaries. And they wondered what was going on. They don't get too many six-foot-two white guys hiking through the middle of their village. And so they were wondering what was going on, and we worked through a couple interpreters, and we said, we're hiking to Gatamambu. And so they, and I usually load my pockets with candy, and so I handed out candy to all the kids who would carry bags and who would carry rice for us. And so we had this entourage of about 20 kids that decided to go with us based off of little Jolly Rancher, uh, Jolly Rancher candies. And so we kept going, and we made it to the second village called Yadakai. Hiked into Yadakai, we got a few more kids, and we kept going, and we uh, made it to Gatamambu. We started hiking in just as the sun was going down to the village that we were heading towards. And I remember hiking in, and the path heading into the village, the last half mile was freshly cut. 
The kids had run ahead and had told everybody that we're coming. And we get in there, and they're just going crazy. They're excitable people to begin with. And uh, what they do is when they're really liking you and they're coming out, they're greeting. They were coming towards us, and I thought they were going to give us a hug because their hands are like this. And what happened is they dropped down on all fours, and they crawl between your legs. So it's kind of strange. But anyways... So we get in there, and they're just going nuts. They're really excited, and my tribal father leans over to me, and he goes, eldest white son, that's what he calls me. I'm his only white son, but anyways. uh, He says, eldest white son, do you know why they're so excited? I said, no. He said, they think you're the one. They think you're their missionary that's going to come live among them. That's why they're so excited. And I said, oh, my goodness. And so we called over the tribal chief, and we told him, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. I'm going to be here for three days. I'm going to take some of your language. I'm going to write it down on paper, and I'm going to take some pictures, and then I'm going to leave. And uh, he, we, think we, heard, we think he heard it. We're not really sure. And we went about our way, and we went all through that village. We had a crowd of little kids that were traveling with us everywhere. Everything we did, there was little eyeballs that were watching us. And uh, finally, the third day comes, and we wake up. And I start uh, putting on my shoes. I pull out the satellite phone, call the pilot, say, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be at the airfield in nine hours. Uh, I'll let you know at the halfway mark. And we step outside of our little house, and the village chief is there. And he's there, and he says, we have to talk. And he pulls me into the house boy along with my tribal father, and he's arranged all the chiefs and the up-and-coming chiefs and the wives are sitting there. And there's these two ladies that are sitting on either side of me, and they have pure white hair, and they're jamming food in my mouth, just trying to be really nice. And he gets up and he says, okay, I see that you're leaving. I see that you're going. But I want to know, when will the one who's going to come learn our language, who's going to come be our missionary, when will he come? And I know that we have nobody coming in the mission for about maybe a year, a year and a half out. And so I'm trying to be diplomatic, and I say, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while before we can send you somebody. And he's the chief, and he's not the chief for no reason. He, uh, he says, okay, and he gets back up, and he says, no, no, no. I want to know how many moons will go by. How many moons will go by until the missionary that's going to come teach us this talk, till he comes to live among us? When will that one come? And I'm starting to sweat, and my tribal father sees me, and I get up, and I say, uh, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a lot of moons. It's going to be a lot of moons. I'm really sorry. Chief gets up one more time and he slams his fist down. He goes, no, I want a number. How many moons will go by until the one that comes to learn our language will be here? And my tribal father says, eldest white son, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. Now, never forget it. He stood up and he said, look around. Look around at everybody in here. Everyone with gray hair will be dead before this talk gets to you. That's how long it will take. Because Lucas had written the letters for us for seven years. And guys, the two ladies on either side of me, they start crying. They know that this talk will not make it to them. They'll be dead before it gets there. Guys, we hiked into that village like we were conquering heroes. We hiked out like we were sneaking out. It's one of the worst feelings in my life. There's a world out there that is dying for what we have. We have to keep moving. We have to keep pressing. We have to keep sending And we have to keep going till the commission is complete that the king gave us. There are still places that are living without this talk. We keep moving until that commission is fulfilled. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you were not vague. You were not hidden. You were not uh, speaking in parables when you got to your final words. You were crystal clear. 
take my name, take my message, take the glory of what I have accomplished on the cross and take it to those last ethnic groups, those last people groups, those last language groups until all have heard, until someday when we gather around the table and there will be a representative from every tongue, tribe, and nation at that table. Lord, help us to continue to be vigilant if we're senders and vigilant if we're goers. Help us to be men and women under command. Thank you so much that you're a good God and the things that you ask, you will empower us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.